Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good together this morning with a call to worship from the 42nd Psalm. Psalm 42, to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? Dropping down to verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Take your hymnals this morning, open to number 548, As the Deer. If you're able and willing, you can stand together with me, number 548. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. You alone are my strength, my shield. To You alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. You're my friend and you are my brother even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. You alone are my strength. 
strength my shield, to you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. You alone are my strength, my shield, to you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship thee. And now a few pages over, 562. 562, Be Thou My Vision. singing that song I love before the throne of God our father we give praise to you this morning in the spirit we praise you for the victory that was won by your son Christ Jesus we give honor and glory to you for your great grace for your great mercy for your great love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The son did not come to condemn the world. He came that the world might have life. We thank you for your grace. We want to exalt and honor you, Lord Jesus, this morning for the victory that you won on our behalf. 
through your righteousness and through your sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that in the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of God, that the righteous one who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. We give you praise and glory this morning. We thank you. Father, we pray this morning, we, we lift up the names that have been mentioned and, and we're going to reflect upon some requests that have been mentioned over previous weeks as we begin to lift these up to you, Father. We remember our sister Martha and the trial and ordeal that she's been through in recent weeks. We thank you for her homecoming, that she is back home. Uh, we pray for her as she has to wear this vest for number of weeks throughout this summer we pray that you would that you would help her through this time we pray that you would strengthen her that you would bring healing to her and we continue to pray for that unspoken request that was shared through facebook uh, shared by tammy we pray for for your working in her life in the life of her family that you would provide what is needed we continue to lift up terry's friend leon and uh, we hear about trouble but father we know that sometimes you use trouble to grab a hold of us and to bring us to the point of surrender. And we pray that this might be the case in Leon's life, that you would use even the trouble, as you tell us in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that you cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we pray for your working in Leon's life in this matter. Father, we, we also remember our sister Terry as she has an, an upcoming surgery. We pray that all would go well give the doctors, give the surgeons skill and understanding and ultimately success, and we look for healing to come from you, Father. Uh, Father, we pray for our sister Karen and her upcoming surgery. We pray that you would attend to her, that you would attend to the physicians who are, who are doing the work and that all would go well, that you would bring about her healing and her recovery. And uh, we thank you for your timing in all of things, Father, that uh, she was there for Joe during the time when he was down, and, and now as he is recovering and, and is regaining strength, that he can be there for her during the time of her need. We pray that you bless them both in this as they get to share each other's burden. Help us to share it as well, Father. We pray for Linda's friend, Beth, who has the broken hip. We thank you for the recovery that she's making and the work that you're doing in her life. We ask for complete healing. Um, Father, we pray for that request that Charlene had shared with us regarding uh, Dan Chaco and, and the cancer surgery that he had this, this past week. Uh, we just pray that you continue to work in his life, that you provide for his healing. Uh, we also remember Kim's friend, Tony, and her father, Tony, who likewise went through a surgery this, this past week for cancer, and we thank you that the surgery went well. Father, we are looking for a good report coming up later this week that, uh, that they will have gotten the cancer. We pray that you would heal him and strengthen him. Uh, dear Father, if there be any others here today that either have not mentioned or if I have failed to mention we know that you are the God who sees, who hears, who knows. You know the needs. As your son told us, uh, you know what needs we have before we even mention them to you. And therefore, we ought not fret and worry. Because you, Father, you care. 
Help us to trust in your kind and generous heart. Help us to trust in your wisdom. You lead us. You lead us every step of the way, even through places that we don't want to go. Help us to trust you. Father, we lift up our nation today. We we pray for repentance. We pray for wisdom and, and guidance. Father, we pray for our leaders as we pray for all men that they would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, we pray for our church and our church family that you would find us to be faithful, that you would find us doing what we ought to be doing, and that you would bless us that we might be a blessing to our neighbors, our families, our community. Who knows how far those ripples will spread. Please use faithfulness to accomplish your work in this world and in the lives of those around us. We ask all of these things, Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has indeed won the victory. Amen. Take your hymnals one last time. We'll go to number 568. May the mind of Christ my Savior. 568, and you may remain seated. As she's dialing up the hymn for us, let me remind you, we're not collecting an offering by passing the plates here today. We're still trying to be responsible citizens and limit exposure, social distancing, and all that good stuff. But there are plates on the back table there, so at the conclusion of today's service, if you have a gift or an offering, you can place it in the plate there. Number 568, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. Christ my Savior, live in me from day to day, by His love and power controlling all I do and say. May the Word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through His power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything, that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. On the fourth as the last, May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. Amen, and that is the victory. Acts chapter 27. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul. He had gone to Jerusalem despite the dire warnings that were given concerning the fate that awaited him if he went there. You will be arrested. You'll be handed over to the Gentiles. You'll be abused by the Jews. Paul says, I'm ready. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to die 
for the Lord Jesus. He goes to Jerusalem anyway. And we've been looking at the story over recent weeks. He was handed over to the Romans. He pled his case at the court of Caesar, which was at Caesarea. First, he, he made his case to Felix. Felix left him in jail because he didn't supply a bribe. Felix is ousted from office. The new governor is Festus. Festus hears his case, but wants to do a favor for the Jews, so Festus doesn't release him. Instead, asks if he wants to go back to Jerusalem to be tried there. Paul says, I'm here at the court of Caesar where I ought to be tried. I want to be tried. And if I can't find justice here, then I appeal to Caesar himself. And Festus says, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And so then last week we saw how King Agrippa was invited to listen in, listen to Paul's testimony. And Paul, ever the evangelist, tries to convert Agrippa and Festus to the faith. Doesn't succeed. But he works at it. He shares the good news of Jesus. And now here we are in Acts chapter 27. And it's time to go to Rome. Paul is going to be on a ship. Verse, tw- verse 1 of chapter 27, let's read the word of the Lord. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, notice the we there, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is back on the journey. He's back with Paul and the team. He says, it was decided that we should sail to Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So, entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius, the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now, When much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Paul's making a reference to the Jewish Day of Atonement, which would be sometime in our September. Okay, so it's getting late in the year. When the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, not Arizona, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. Uh, I believe this is a headwind that refers to a southwestern wind. South, I'm sorry, a southeast wind. So when the ship, like we have our nor'easters, well, this was a southeaster. When the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship 
fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. They struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. I believe this is pointing to the dire situation that they were in. You don't get rid of your ship's tackle willingly. You might lose it in a storm, but you don't get rid of it by your own hands. That's how desperate their situation was. They're trying to lighten the load any way they can. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat upon us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. These are men who have lost all hope. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. But don't we love that kind of person? He says, I told you so. <laughs> but he does. He says, Men, you should have listened to me. And indeed, they should have. Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God has granted you. That means, Paul, God heard your request and he's honoring it. He's going to give you the thing you've been asking for. What does that mean? That means Paul has been asking for the lives of every man on board that ship. Not for his own life. He knows he has to go to Rome. He's been appointed to go there. God has a destination for him. He has to go and testify before Caesar. God has plans for him. Paul's okay. But during all this time, Paul has been beseeching. He's been begging and pleading with God, please, Father, these men who are with me, every single one of them, please give them to me. Give me these lives. Spare them. Save them along with mine. And the angel tells Paul, God has heard your re request and he's honoring it he's granted what you've asked he's giving you the thing you've asked for not a single life will be lost therefore take heart men for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me however we must run aground on a certain island now when the 14th night had come as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They're just hoping for the best, in other words. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. These men have to stay. If they go, God's not going to give me the thing that I asked Him for. I asked for your lives. They have to stay in the ship. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you've been, 
You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. He leads by example, an example of faith, an example of gratitude, faithfulness. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. Why is that important to Luke? I mean, for salvation purposes, do we need to know that there were 276 men on board that ship? No, we don't. But I'm sure it was important to Luke who wrote it because it was important to Paul who had been praying for every single one of those 276. It mattered to Paul. God honored his prayer, honored his request, and granted him the lives of each one of these men. Even these men who as soldiers were holding him prisoner, taking him to testify before Caesar where he might likely lose his life. And Paul sought their good. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. No more food. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. They've got nothing left. They've got a wooden boat. No tackle, no anchors, no food. They've thrown everything overboard. It's all or nothing. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldier's plan according to official Roman protocol, was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. You see, if you were a soldier in charge of prisoners and a prisoner escaped, you just lost the life of a convict from your custody. Your life will be required. So as a soldier, I'm not going to lose my life because that guy escaped. I'm not going to let him escape. Kill the prisoners, save your own skin, right? The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, because it was being broken up. So it was that they all escaped safely to land. What a ride! What a very different storm. What a very different outcome than the one that uh, I and the girls were talking about just a little bit ago. The disciples found themselves in the midst of a violent storm and Jesus calmed the storm. Here, Paul and his companions and the other 260 or 70 some people who were on board with them find themselves in the midst of a tempest. But there's no stilling this storm. Even an apostle of the Lord doesn't still this storm. And so it raises a question in my mind for all of us to consider this morning. Why is it that God does 
still some storms and not others. If we consider a storm symbolically, metaphorically, to be a a time of severe hardship in our lives, you know, sometimes our lives can feel pretty stormy, can't they? We've all been through storms. We've all gone through difficulties. And we find that sometimes God stills those storms. Sometimes He doesn't. And it's when He doesn't that our faith may be shaken. God, where were you in the midst of the storm? Why didn't you still this storm? Was it because God couldn't? Well, of course not. God's omnipotent. He has power, all power. He can do as He pleases. And yet God doesn't still every storm. Why is that? Let's look at it. The first thing I want you to consider is that God is active and at work. You know, being Independence Day, we think about some of our founding fathers. We think about men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. And the fact is that for some of these men, I'm thinking especially like Ben Franklin, they had a view of God that was based upon a philosophical idea called deism. The idea was that God was the creator and he he flung the universe into existence, maybe kind of like a watchmaker creates a very complicated watch and he sets the mechanism in motion and it runs its course and he withdraws himself and he lets everything play out. Some people have looked at God that way, and maybe we've even been tempted to do that from time to time. The psalmist cried out many times, Where are you, God? I'm in the midst of trouble. Why does it seem like you do not hear me? Where are you? And then the psalmist bolsters his faith and says, I will wait upon the Lord. My hope and my trust is in you, O God. Even though it seems like The heavens are made of stone and my prayers don't get through and you aren't hearing and I'm not seeing you at work. Nevertheless, I will wait upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I will trust in you. My soul will hope in you because you are my rock and my redeemer. We need to remember that God is active and at work. Jesus, when he was confronted by some of the Pharisees regarding healing a man who was lame, he just happened to do it on the Sabbath day when you're not supposed to do any work, right? And the Pharisees accosted him and said, what is this business you're doing? Doing work on the Sabbath day, healing this man. And Jesus said, let me tell you something. My father has been working up until now and I'm working too. My father has been at work ever since They plucked that fruit from the tree and took a bite and fell into sin and rebellion. My father's been working. I'm working too. I must do the work of my father. God is active and at work. He's active and at work in the course of history to accomplish his purposes. I'll refer you to Acts chapter 17 verse 26 when the apostle Paul spoke to the intelligentsia of his day on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, he preached a sermon to them. And he said, God has appointed 
the times and the boundaries of all of the nations of the world. He did this to see if they would seek Him. Because He can be found. He's not far from us. Paul says that some of your poets have even said, in Him we live and move and have our being. He's not far from us. And He appointed the times and the boundaries. He made of one blood all the races of men that dwell upon the face of the earth. All of the nations, all of the families of the earth. And He appointed their times and their bounds. You know what that tells me? God is active and at work in the history of humanity. He didn't wind the thing up like some watchmaker or clockmaker and let the thing run its course. He's actively engaged and involved. And at times, He interjects Himself in very recognizable ways to alter the flow of history. Well, how does He do that? Well, I do remember a certain incident of Him splitting a sea so a nation could walk through it. I remember a time whenever He split a river so He could bring that same nation into a land where He could bless them. I remember a certain time where He spoke to a man named Abram and said, I want you to get up out of your father's land and go to a place I'm going to show you because I've got a plan for the world. I'm going to bless all of the families of the world, but I am choosing and electing you to be the one through whom I bring about this fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah, the Christ, so that all peoples can be blessed. Oh, God has interjected himself many times in human history. Most notably, when there was a baby who was laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. God interjected himself into the history of this world, in the history of humanity, by taking upon himself the form of humanity. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. So we look at all of these big events that God has interjected himself into the course of history, but the fact is, God is working very much at work, I'm sure of it, many ways that we don't recognize and we don't see. God is at work in history. God is at work in the lives of those who are around us. I want you to consider, very quickly, Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph, the son of Jacob? He was the favored son. His brothers hated him for it. They saw the favoritism in the family and they despised Joseph. They were going to kill him. But then they came up with a plan, we'll sell him. We'll sell him to be a slave in the land of Egypt. Joseph's brothers did horrible things to him. They abused him in horrible ways. And Joseph suffered many things. And all along the way we read, but the Lord was with Joseph. When he was in a prison in Egypt, we, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. And then eventually Joseph, through a series of events, rises to become the right hand in command over all of the nation of Egypt, God reveals to Pharaoh a series of dreams that there's going to be a famine that will afflict all of the ancient world. Joseph interprets the dream and God positions him to wisely prepare a storehouse, a supply of food so that when the seven years of famine come, the nation of Egypt can survive. But not just the nation of Egypt. The nations around who will stream into Egypt to be saved from this famine because they hear there's food in Egypt. And among those nations that stream in is a man named Jacob. 
And he has 11 other sons who are brothers of Joseph. And they are saved from the famine. And when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they're terrified because they figured he died a long time ago. And here he is, the most powerful man in Egypt. They think that he's going to deal harshly with them. And Joseph says to them, brothers, don't be afraid. He said, I know what you did to me. You intended it for evil. I know the plans that you had. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for something else. God meant it for good. God meant it so that your lives could be saved. Because remember, God is at work in human history, and He was at work in building a nation through which the Messiah could come. God took their evil, and He brought good out of it. It's almost as if God saw the evil that they intended, and He said, well, that's maybe not the way I would do it, but I can work with that. I can use that. I'll use it. I'll use it and use it for not only the good of the world, I'll use it for their good too. The ones who meant evil, I'll use it for their good. I'll save their lives because my plan can thwart their plan. My will can override their will. Remember, he's the God who brings good even out of man's evil. Not that God plans the evil, Not that he calls the evil into existence, but he can work with it. He can use it to accomplish his purposes according to his will. He did that in the life of Joseph and Joseph's brothers. God is at work in the lives of those who are around us. But God is at work in our lives. Let's make that real personal. God is at work in my life. Now, I know we're not a real vocal congregation, and that doesn't bother me at all, but I want you to be vocal right here. I want you to say this phrase with me, God is at work in my life. Let's say it together. God is at work in my life. And He is. God is at work in my life. So that brings up the second question this morning. How is God at work in my life? How is God at work in my life? And here's the real crux of the matter. Why does it involve Hardship, heartache, and suffering. You know, Job, Job in the Old Testament, he suffered much. And he said something along the lines of, you know, like the sparks fly upward. It's appointed to man to suffer. Pain. Life hurts. Sparks from a campfire. You've all seen them. They go flying up. And that's what man's life is like. There's joy. There's pain. There's laughter. There's tears. There's hurt. So if God is at work in my life, how is He at work in my life? And why does it have to involve hardship, heartache, and suffering? None of us are immune. We're all going to have our taste of it. It might be a different slice of that pie, but we're going to get a serving. Why? Why does it have to be that way? We might be tempted to think, well, if I was God, I would do things differently. No one would have to suffer, right? Right? Because I'm better than God. I'm, I'm kinder. I've got a bigger heart than God, right? No one would have to suffer. I'd see to that. So I start judging things and I say, well, if I would do it that way, I would think that God should do it that way and God should be better than me, so how much better should He do it than me? And yet I'm experiencing something that hurts. I'm experiencing suffering. I'm experiencing heartache. And then I begin to wonder, is there even a God? If there is a God, does he even care? 
You know, it's a real question. We all, we all have to struggle with it. So if we're going to hold on to hope and faith, like the psalmist does, whenever he found himself in the midst of hardships, and he said, no, 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 I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to hope in the Lord. I will wait on Him. We want to know, why is it this way? Why does it have to be? Well, I want to submit three things to you. God is testing us, perhaps. God's building faith in us. God is building character in us. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. It's worth turning to. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter. We'll get you here, James. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When life gets hard, be happy. Be glad. Why? I'm glad he tells us. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith. Okay, our faith can't be tested unless life gets hard. The testing of your faith produces patience. So what? Well, verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work. Let it finish the job that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect and complete. You know, Jesus said something about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, be perfect just like your Father in heaven is perfect. And we hear that word perfect and we think, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to do that? Flawless perfection, right? Well, the word means maturity. Be fully mature. Be grown up. Be a piece of fruit that is well ripened and ready. Be perfect. The testing of our faith comes through trials, hardships, suffering. It produces patience. Patience when it has finished its job. And I believe it's not done until we get to the end of our race. But when patience has finished its work, we are perfect. We are grown up. We are mature. Fully developed. Not halfway there. Not three quarters of the way there. All the way there. God uses trials testing in our lives to produce this patience which brings about maturity. You won't get there without it. If you've ever, if you've ever built a puzzle, I know you've all built puzzles, haven't you? You ever tried building that puzzle without looking at the picture? You've got to have the picture to know what it looks like. Okay, God has given us a picture. The picture, His purpose in all of this, bringing us to maturity, growing us up in our faith. His purpose is to conform us to the image of His Son. Romans 8, 28-29 talks about this. That those that God foreknew, He predestined. Predestined means He has scheduled a destination for you. What's that destination? What's that look like? Okay, when we took a cruise back in February... This cruise was destined to go to a series of places. That was already laid out. That was planned. When we signed up and we got on that boat, now we're going to those places too. Well, God had a destination in mind. His destination was that all that would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ would be like Jesus Christ. 
That was the destination. That's where the ship was sailing to. That everyone who is in Christ is going to be fully grown up, fully mature. They're going to look like Jesus. They're going to be conformed to the image of his son. That word conformed is a pressure word. It's like if you take a lump of clay and push it down into a mold and press it in and then pull it out and you have an exact image of what that mold was, okay? Pressed into that mold. God, through trials, through hardships, is pressing us. And we don't want to be pressed. Don't push me. Don't press me. Don't hassle me. He's pressing us into a mold. When that work is done, the idea is that we will be like his son. That there will be lots of sons and daughters that are just like his son. So God has given us this picture of the puzzle. We know what the destination looks like. It looks like Jesus. Now that is not to say that God wants cookie cutters. He doesn't want cookies. He doesn't want to cookie cutter every Christian. No, the idea is this. My personality, Christ's perfection. I'm looking forward to seeing what the perfect version of David looks like. I can't wait to see what the perfect version of Terry or Linda or Betty looks like. You get the idea? He doesn't want cookies that are all cut out with the same shape. But Christ's perfection, your personality, the perfect version of you. And God's at work. He's accomplishing that in our lives. And he uses the trials, the tribulations, the sufferings, the heartaches, the pain of this present age to accomplish his purpose in us. His purpose? Christ Jesus. Now, as we wrap it up, I want to leave you with one last point. And we might look at it a little bit more next week, but I don't want you to leave here today without this because I think it ties in real good with what we see the psalmist doing all through the psalms. We talked about that earlier. Last question. We saw it in the passage we read in Acts 27. Paul yeah, I believe it's verse 31. Paul tells them, don't let those men leave. Don't let them escape in the skiff. Cut the ropes. Drop that skiff. Everyone has to be on this boat if you want to live. That's weird. Why is being in the boat of such vital, vital meaning life, vital importance? I want you to think about another boat that set sail. Whenever the earth was filled with violence and wickedness and God found a just man, a righteous man, his name was Noah. Three boys, their wives, Noah's wife. Eight souls in all. And God told them how to prepare a boat, how to build it. You have to be in the boat. The scriptures tell us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness for like 120 years. He didn't win a single convert. If anyone else had gotten in the boat, they would have been saved. But the world that then was perished. Yet Noah and his family were saved through the judgment. They were carried by the judgment upon the top of the waters in this boat that God had prepared. They had to be in the boat if they wanted to be saved. Outside the boat, there's death, there's destruction, there's perishing going on. Inside the boat, there's salvation. This is a picture for us, and I don't want you to miss it. Because there is a name 
And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. You have to be in the boat if you want to be saved. You won't make it to God some other way. And there are lots of ways that teach lots of good things. Lots of good things that can make you a a better person or a person who lives morally, but none of those other ways can actually save you. There is one way that can save, and that is Jesus Christ. That ark was just a picture of the salvation that God was going to bring through Jesus Christ. Jesus, if you will, is our ark. You have to be in the boat. If you want to be saved. So someone asks, how do I enter into this ark, into this boat? Well, you enter through faith. It's the only way. You don't enter by good works, good deeds, giving money, anything like that. Anything that the world holds up as to be good and virtuous things. And I'm not saying that they aren't. It's just you don't get in that way. You enter into Christ Jesus through faith, trusting, like we talked earlier, that he won that victory, that he paid that price, that he alone did the only thing that could be done that nobody else could do to bring you to God. It's through trusting him that you enter in. But it raises a second question that is worth considering here this morning because my assumption is every single one of you has entered in. I sure hope to God that you have. But here, this is important. How do I continue in the ark? You see, there were some men who, despite the promise that had been given by Paul, they got scared and they were looking to jump. They were going to make another way, their own way. And Paul told the centurion, don't let them do it. They have to stay in the boat. You know, when we go through the midst of hardships and trials, sufferings, we will be tempted. I didn't say may, will be tempted to find some other way, to jump off the boat, to look for an escape hatch. Don't do it. Continue in the boat. Continue in the ark. Continue in Christ Jesus. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 talks about contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all given to the saints. There's one body of truth, one body of truth from which our faith comes. It is the truth that is revealed in God's word through the prophets and the apostles. Continue in Christ Jesus by continuing in the faith. You know, the apostle Paul, he wrote most of our New Testament. He wrote a lot of letters. And he wrote out of his own life's experience in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, but, but mainly in verse 14, he talks about how we should not be like infants. We shouldn't be like little children who are tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. Paul had been through a storm. He was writing out of experience. Don't be tossed about by every new teaching that comes along. Don't be looking for a new teaching. You have the revealed word of God given through the prophets and the apostles This reveals Jesus Christ, the boat, the ark that you must continue in. Hold fast to the faith which was once for all delivered to all the saints. 
all of God's holy ones. Paul references this faith in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Again, in 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 18, he talks about a few different characters, one of whose names was Hymenaeus. He, he references this guy who was a Christian, I guess, in the church at Ephesus, but this guy departed from the faith. He went after some other teachings and he began teaching these other things to the Christians there. And Paul rebuked him. And Paul said, ultimately, I had to hand him over to Satan so that he would learn not to blaspheme. He said that Hymenaeus, along with Alexander and Philetus, that these men concerning the faith, they made a shipwreck out of themselves. Paul knew something about shipwrecks. A ship that is wrecked, there's no organization to it. There's no cohesive order or plan. But floating upon the waters is all the flotsam, all the jetsam, all the planking, all of the cargo. It's a mess. It's like Humpty Dumpty. You're not putting it back together again. These men had made a shipwreck out of their faith. How did it happen? How did they end up in that mess that they were in? It happened because they didn't hold to the teaching of the apostles. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 talks about that early church. How they had fellowship and communion with each other daily. Breaking bread in each other's homes. And they were holding fast to the apostles teaching. And that's that last point that I want to leave you with. Hold fast to the teaching of the apostles. Hold fast to the Jesus Christ that they reveal to you in these pages. Because there are other Jesuses out there, but they are false copies of the real thing. And they will lead you into a shipwreck. Hold fast to the Jesus, God in flesh, that the apostles revealed. Hold fast to their teaching. Don't run after any self-styled new present-day prophets. We have God's Word. Don't run after the prophets. Don't make a shipwreck out of your faith, and you're going to be tempted in the midst of trial, hardship, heartache, and suffering to look for another way, to look for an escape. You're going to look for answers. Instead, continue in that ship, in that boat, in that ark. Continue in Jesus Continue in the teaching of the apostles. And like the psalmist, when it seems like the sky is shut, and where is God in the midst of the storm? Say, I will wait upon the Lord. My soul will hope and trust in Him. All of these things are designed to bring about our maturity. God is very much at work in this world, in history, in the lives of those around us, and in our own lives. And the business that he's about is your perfection, your maturity. Let him do the hard work through you. Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. 
Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.